Okay, you've spent four grueling days climbing the mountain through ice, wind, treacherous rain. As you get close to the peak, you find what you've been looking for, the open fissure that will lead you to the fabled treasure of Garza Dune. Looking down, there's no way to get in without a rope. Osbin, what do you want to do? Osbin. Osbin. Oh, 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 oh yeah, y- y- yeah? What do you want to do? Well, I guess we should start going up the mountain by the path that we found. Uh, you just spent four days going up the mountain. Oh, well, that's that's handy. Uh, then we should look for Garza Dune? Uh This time on Becoming DM, we're talking about keeping players engaged in your sessions. Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Danielle. And to get started, like we've been doing for a lot of our recent episodes, let's talk about why keeping players engaged is important at your table. Uh, So Danielle, I want you to go ahead and kick this one off. I feel like uh, the importance of keeping players engaged at your table is a lot of it for me comes down to players who are distracted aren't fully invested in the story because you're trying to build a scenario, you're trying to build a story, and if you have people who aren't paying attention, who are distracted, they're not really getting the full story, and that's kind of the point of D&D for Mm -hmm. me anyways, especially being the DM. Yeah, and I feel like that can really there's there's three ways that that individually can can affect your game. One is is the player themselves. You're having to repeat and tell them stuff over and over again potentially. Uh, two is the rest of the players who may be paying attention and, and invested and and really ready to go. And every time you have to do that, they're like, oh, this again, and they could get like tired of playing your game because you keep on having to do that. And then you. Um, as the DM, are eventually going to fr- get frustrated with it as well. Absolutely. There's there's something with D and like being the DM, you have to do so much more prep work, so much you you have to put a lot more effort into the game than players do. You know, like you you literally build the world around four people, four ish people, and so like they only have this small, tiny little problem, <laughs> which is themselves. <laughs> and everything else is your problem. Everything else. Even the interactions between those two people or those four people are still your problem. And having people who aren't paying attention to to what you're doing and what, uh, what you're putting forward and putting forth, honestly, that, that kind of hurts. It, it gets you right in the feels because you're trying to, like, do this really cool thing and they're just not having it. Yeah, and and when it when it gets to the point where where it is we'll say hurting your feelings but affecting you as a DM whatever, that can also mm. lead into other things. So it can really lead into you starting to feel DM imposter syndrome, I'm not good enough to keep these people's attention and and stuff like that. So um it it can dovetail into these other things that we've talked about on the show and really just be this like this uh circle of of bad stuff i'm losing track of what i was going to say there but (laughs) but it's so 
by taking some of these tips and adding them to your game where appropriate, it can it can also help you as a DM uh, invo- avoid some of those those feelings of imposter syndrome. Absolutely. And one of the easiest ways to to deal with this at your table is to just it's just set up rules, table rules. If you're upfront about what you intend for the play sessions to be like, then it's not it doesn't come as a shock to your players. Like if they show up, everybody shows up and you're like, by the way, this is a new rule, everybody follow it. Um and nobody's kind of planned around that <laughs> it can it can be a little bit overwhelming for players but if you're really upfront about it you send out a message hey you guys we're setting up you know table rules new table rules we're not going to have devices at the table that's a big one nowadays with smartphones and tablets mm-hmm. and i know a lot of campaigns use smartphones and tablets and so that becomes a little bit trickier for them yep um <clears throat> but like you had like your players have a viewing portal to the entire world sitting right in front of them with people constantly trying to get in contact with them. That can be extremely distracting. Absolutely. And, and setting up these rules, I think doing it in a session zero or just a, an email before you even start your game is a great place to start. But from my experience, you can't just stop there. You have to kind of every so often reiterate reinforce what those rules are because people will will be like well you know i saw joe pick up his phone the other day so it must be okay now (laughs) um (laughs) and and so i have and and i'll say this when you when you reinforce those rules don't single out players don't be like hey i saw joe talking on his phone last week at the game so we need to really make sure that you guys are not talking in your phone just just have a at the beginning of a session be like hey guys just want to reinforce some of the things that that we're doing with this game first off no devices second off blah 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 and put a couple of rules in there that people aren't necessarily breaking so you're not just focusing on that one guy who's on his phone all the time maybe give him the hint and if it doesn't get happen then you can you can take bigger actions later but mm-hmm. which start with pulling them aside and having a private conversation with the individual because yep. nothing can uh, can cause more tension in a group than calling somebody out publicly um, <laughs> with, <laughs> with everybody there i mean sometimes it's so frustrating when you see somebody doing that and you want to deal with it right away but that can almost cause more problems than it would ever solve yep unfortunately and i mean we we're talking about devices but but these rules could apply to a number of things that you feel like are going to um pull players away from the immersion uh and and the thing that i that we were talking about before is if your player if your players are just getting too drunk to play and i mean a lot of people like to have a drink from time to time. A lot of games have alcohol at their games. Mine, mine typically has at least two or three people in the game drinking. Um, but they, they haven't gotten to the point where it's been a problem. If you have players that this is a problem where it, it's completely derailing a session, it's probably something you want to talk about in, uh, in, those, uh, in those setup rules. Mm-hmm. And then not just alcohol either. In Canada... Oregon and California, I believe there's other substances that are legal Mm -hmm. uh, for people to consume. And you want to keep a bit of a handle on those. It's the same type of idea as alcohol. If somebody's getting, 
has has had too much to function properly at the table, that's that's a problem, right? Because if if literally everyone at the table is, and this is why I put in the notes is uh, the the sobriety level. Um, mm-hmm. because if everyone at the table is at the same sobriety level, regardless of what that level is, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of like the ideal spot to be. Yeah. And I mean, there is some leeway one way or the other a little bit, but you get too far one way with some people and the people that are not that far are going to start checking out. Cause they're like, man, this guy's a clown. I'm not going to deal with him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most definitely. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes not necessarily the sobriety one, but (laughs) uh, some rules might need exceptions from time to time, especially with devices. People can have stuff going on in their personal lives that they need to tend to. And so it's, it's, it's important to predetermine, I guess, how strict these rules are and also keep an open line of communication for somebody, you know, has something going on. And so they'll tell you, maybe you have a rule, no phones at the table. And they'll say, you know, I've, I'm actually waiting on a personal call, so I have to have my phone at the table. It's like, all right, cool. You know, that's that's your real life. <laughs> that's that's more important than D and D. So go ahead, have your table or have your phone there. But if you make sure to open those lines of communication and have players approach you kind of before the session starts, then for me, if I were, if I know that I've got a rule about say no phones on the table. And somebody over there is just sitting there constantly checking their phone. And they haven't told me it's because it's this super crazy, important, real life thing. It's going to frustrate me and it's going to impact my ability to DM. Yeah, but well they're as, over there just waiting for a for a job offer for a, for an interview that they just had. <laughs> exactly. And so it, that's why it's just important to keep those, those communication lines open. You've got to get people to tell you kind of like what's up. Absolutely. And and we talked a little bit about this in the dealing with problem players game a while back, but I feel like this episode we're going to go a bit more in depth into into some of these topics. So um, if you wanted a little bit of a, a primer for that, go take a look at that episode. But uh, otherwise, let's keep going. So once you have these rules, it's important to kind of have them defined somewhere. And whether that's something like an email that you send out to your group and say, hey, just want you to be aware this is what we're doing or a handout you give to them in person or it's something that's pinned in your online group or it's or it's posted in your gaming space. Um, having somewhere that they can that they can see them and it's not just you verbally telling them these are the rules, I think is is very important in this if you're going to be setting these rules just because, if if they're having trouble being engaged already and they're not going to listen to what you're saying what you're saying about the rules necessarily i mean we get into <laughs> other problems with like should they really be in the game at that point but let's just say that they should be yeah um and putting something in a concrete manner actually makes it seem more important mm-hmm. because if all you ever do is say it um it's not going to seem as important as if you can hand them a document or hang a document or have something that somebody can look at and see it'll register better in their in their brain. Oh, Danielle spent the time to write this up. It must have some level of importance to her. <laughs> <laughs> so, let let's kind of get past the 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 table rules and and talk a little bit more about um 
the actual things that you can do to try and keep them engaged. And, and I think the first place we have to stop off is the plot itself. And, and there's a number of things that you can do here. And you've got down here almighty cliffhanger. And I like the, <laughs> the term, the almighty cliffhanger is I, I feel like this is a way to have things in your story that maybe don't have answers, but the, that, that the, players might have burning questions about, but they can't get the answers right then and there. And so they want to pursue what those answers are. Uh, but what are, what are your think? What are your thoughts on, on cliffhangers? Cliffhangers are amazing. If you can pull them off, I've mm-hmm. always kind of struggled with them because I am by nature, a very curious person. And so I, I like, I like having all the answers out there, but having a cliffhanger out there, not only it, it builds player anticipation between sessions, right? So the more that you can build anticipation between sessions, the more excited they are to get to the next session, the more likely they'll be to be invested into the game itself. Now, the biggest challenge with cliffhangers is pacing because you don't know where your players are going to be when it's just time to stop. There's there's no way to predict it. And sometimes you'll get really lucky. Um, in, in the early phases of the Pathfinder game that I'm running, the players were exploring this uh, labyrinth set up by this insane king centuries ago. And there was a, a glowing portal. And they said, well, hey, let's jump into the glowing portal. And it just happened to be at the time that we were getting ready to wrap up. So they jumped in and I described like the terrible pain that they were in jumping into the portal. And then I said, and everything goes black. And that was it. That was the session. And everybody's like, oh, and and it was very cool. But it's difficult to achieve that unless you are just going to have a specific milestone that says this is when we stop playing. Yes, most definitely. It, it uh, especially the longer your session is, mm-hmm. uh, the harder that is to achieve. If you've only ever got a two-hour session, it becomes more likely to happen than if you're running eight-hour sessions. Yeah, and and ours are typically five to six hours, so it it doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I think aside from the cliffhanger. One thing that I really like to do, and I've mentioned this a couple times on the show, is to tie in uh, character backstories. So the players have spent this time, in a lot of cases, writing up a backstory that they feel represents the history of their character. And and yeah, some players write things that are like, oh yeah, I slayed a dragon and I'm level one. Um, (laughs) but, But a lot of them will have interesting little tidbits. And if you can... If you can utilize that to tie into the story that you're creating, I think that that brings buy-in already because it's like, oh, you were listening to me. You were listening to me when I talked about my backstory. Huh? Awesome. It gives your players a lot of buy-in to the story if uh, if you can tie in parts of their backstory. The only note I'd put with that is uh, <clears throat> I usually keep a note. Like uh, I'll grab everybody's backstories when I am launching a campaign and I'll make little notes on their backstory, stuff that's relevant to me, stuff that I think that I can kind of slide in. And I keep that beside me. And I try to, as often as possible, tie in elements of character backstory. But I also make absolutely sure that I'm choosing different characters as often as possible. Because mm-hmm. 
if you're if you're not careful, you can be like, well, that person kind of had a really boring backstory and I've just not paid attention to it. That can really single out one player. Uh, yeah, it's the Osmond show. All the stuff happens to him. <laughs> yeah, because he's the person who wrote down the most stuff. You know, and that's that's not overly fair. Not everybody is uh, is is a writer. Yep. I've I've gotten some long character backgrounds and I've gotten some character backgrounds that are I am an orc. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. Okay. And and I think that if you don't have an in-depth backstory from the characters, there's a there's a few things that you can do. Um and it depends on how much of a backstory you have. So I had uh, a, a player who told me the backstory of their character was that uh, their half-orc joined the military, decided it wasn't for him because he didn't like following orders, and so he left. And and I, I've mentioned um, uh, um, his kind of nemesis several times in the show, Hans. Um, and Hans was basically just me saying, okay, well, you were in the military. Something obviously happened there. So maybe you've got somebody that you just hated. So I, I made up this rivalry that was his backstory. And he really kind of bit off on it just because it was really tied into him. So if you mm-hmm. have a nugget of a backstory, um, however small, you can expand it. And, and that, I think, works really well. Now, sometimes you'll have players that have no backstory. Same game. I've got another player that's like, hi, this is my character. And I really don't like to talk about my past and that's it. Um, so you could completely make up a backstory for them. You're not going to get as much buy-in, I don't think, or you could try to tie in, um, parts of the story to the mechanics of their character. So, uh, this person was playing a, a rogue. And so I had this kind of subplot with uh with the 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 thieves guild and somebody specific from the thieves guild kind of befriended them and and a lot of story happened around that so if you don't have a backstory you can leverage mechanics of the the player's character because they chose that character they chose that class they chose that race for a reason so being able to tie that in can help as well absolutely it can and yeah, just it, you can build out their backstory as as they're playing with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had that happen a couple times where somebody's playing a character that doesn't really have much of a backstory, and they're like, "Well, I really want to do this, but I'm, I, I don't, I don't know where I came from." Or they'll they'll ask some questions, and we'll just say, "Well, you're from here. You're doing this because of this. How about that? You know, you know them for this reason." And I've had people get like really excited about that even though it wasn't a part of their character before mm-hmm. it is now. And you can, if a person's buying into it, when you do this, you can actually see them get excited about it. Yeah. And I, I think the important thing for the way that you approach that was that you involved, you involved the character based upon something that the player said. You, they said, I wanted, I really am interested in doing this. And you're like, well, let's find a way. Um, whereas, what I've kind of was, was doing with this, this rogue character was like, well, I got nothing. They haven't explained to me what they want to do. So I want to, want to plug them in. So it, it really depends on what information you have, how you can, how you can go about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like the idea of the thieves guild. Cause then you're tying them in, in a forward manner instead of a, instead of a retroactive manner. Mm-hmm. And any character can do this. Um, I have a, 
I have a, a player that is a, a cleric and he had some backstory, but not a lot. So we've been kind of building onto that through de- dream sequences with interactions um, with his God who, who kind of gives some, um, um, Oh, I'm losing the term for it. Predictions about his future. And, and, uh, and they're not, they're very vague, but it gives him the opportunity to kind of explore like, well, what did that mean? Um, so yeah, it's like a, a, a front story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can have, uh, you, yeah. Predictions and stuff that can get a little bit, uh, a little bit convoluted. Yeah. So, th- this one was, was specifically tied to something that I knew was, I knew for sure was going to happen later in the game. It's actually getting close to coming up. So I'm interested to see if he ties the two together. We'll see. Oh, okay. That, that's good. Cause otherwise you can get yourself into a world of trouble with, uh, with doing stuff like that. You gotta be really careful. Well, I'm doing really careful or really right vague. <laughs> and that, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you gotta be careful. So another thing that uh, can help keep your players engaged is uh, <clears throat> letting them know that something that they've done has had an impact on the world around them. Oh, yeah. So your players are in your world. And if you're constantly having them just move from place to place and nothing necessarily changes, I mean, the story changes and that's 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 what's happening. But the world around them doesn't change because of the actions that they're taking. It can really give a sense of just you're not having an impact. What you're doing doesn't matter. And it can take a lot of the realism away from the game. Mm-hmm. Putting in just tiny things, little things that change as a result of your players. I had one time uh, one of my spellcasters decided to go to a bar uh, this little CD back of the back of the wall kind of thing, and in the middle of the bar, they decided to summon a horse and drop it onto a, a different bar patron. Um, like an actual horse? Yeah, yeah. They, oh, okay. they, they summoned a horse <laughs> <laughs> and dropped it in the bar, um, and then they they ran away, right? Because there was a horse in the bar, right? <laughs> And they just killed one of the patrons of the bar. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of negative stuff going around. Uh, but that was a bar, and so I had, I already actually had, a, um, oh, what do you, uh, like a poem, like a, hmm. Oh, like, the word is completely gone. Where we've it's like been a having a lot there. of that this episode. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> so, anyways, there's there's this poem. It tells a prophecy oh thank goodness so there's this prophetical poem that uh, these people knew one of them knew it and it they somehow interpreted it as this horse was part of that and the person who cast the horse was part of that and he was he was this this new god that was in the city and so they actually built a cult around this incident (laughs) and their church became this bar and so even (laughs) and so it didn't really impact my story, it didn't really impact the town aside from a couple of really crazy people um, kind of gathering at this bar every night. Uh, but it's something in the town, or in the city actually, that completely changed as a result of something that one of my players did. And they got such a kick out of it because they had an impact on the world. No matter how small, it still mm-hmm. felt like a living, breathing entity. 
Yeah, and this can play right into what we talked about in uh, in episode 41 about uh, holidays and calendars to where the players do something and maybe it was something that they thought was little, but the people in the town thought was big. And so they have a holiday around them. And so maybe it's not readily apparent right away, but when they travel back through there again, it's like, oh, hey, it's it's Osmond Day, blah, blah, blah. And, and just having that... <laughs> Having that tie-in um, again, it, it just shows that the that the that they have an impact in the world. It's not just them following a storyline. Exactly, it's it's absolutely amazing when you can do stuff like that. Do you like quests? If so, I have good news for you. Darkwind, the sponsor of this episode of Becoming DM, is full of quests for your character to pursue. Whether it's finding the components to make a potion, dealing with the town bully, assembling an ancient artifact, or just finding a collar for the local stray, there are a lot of quests to check out. And they're all ranked by level, so you know what you're getting into before you start off. You can play Darkwind and check out all of the quests for free. Just go to play.darkwind.org to start your character today. Now let's get back to the show. Another <clears throat> important way to uh, make your PC's actions count is by giving them important choices. Uh, something that I like to think about <clears throat> is uh, the trolley problem. I'm mm-hmm. it, where you've got you know a train heading down a track that splits into two tracks, and on one track you've got um, you know like a lady, see, uh, your mom is on like yeah one like side a loved one, a love yeah a loved one is on one side of the track, and on the other side of the track is like fifteen other people. It doesn't even matter. Total who they strangers, are. just like total strangers, and so but you have to put the trolley down one of those tracks. You don't get a choice between them. And so those can really, really ramp up. Like I've I've seen players where it take most of a session when you give them a trolley problem, like a really big, important question. Uh, and most importantly, this one would have consequences, very serious consequences. Something bad is going to happen depending on your choice, and you can't you can't just cast a spell <laughs> and make the train come off the tracks. Hopefully. That would probably and be a question, though. <laughs> it would definitely be a question. <laughs> Can no. I turn the train into a mouse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that introducing that gray area where your players have to think about what they're doing rather than just saying, we're going to the next step of the story, we're fighting these guys, then we go to the next step of the story. Um, having those decisions where there's gray areas where it's not clear what the right decision is and where those decisions have an impact on your story. So this gets gets into the like not railroading the players a lot. Um, and some players enjoy the railroading, but a lot of them don't. And, and what you mean by not railroading could be something as simple as, hey, whatever choice you make is going to have an impact on what, what the story is. And yeah, it can get uh, it can get pretty intense when you've got uh, stuff like that. But it it boy does it give you some buy in. People get <laughs> so invested into it when when they have to make a terrible decision. <laughs> yeah, I know it kind of sounds it, it kind of sounds weird as a DM to you know get so excited about an innocent being 
you know, being put into a bad spot. But uh, it can give you a lot of buy-in. And then, uh, so, <laughs> so other ways, so that's, that's during plot though. And so you can use plot to, to build that stuff out, but you also have to keep your players engaged during combat. Mm-hmm. Um, and combat can, if, if, if you're not careful, combat can drag in five, well, in, in tabletop role-playing. And, and the, the important thing here is to, to understand where your players are excited. So, if they're excited about combat, then having combat go a little bit longer could be okay. But if 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 they're more excited about role playing, or you've got a mixed group, then then you really do need to keep an eye on to make sure you're not doing like a two hour combat session or something like that. Um, and and uh, there's a there's a few ways that you can do that, and one of them is going to be to um I, i'm going to skip around here one of them is going to be to 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 limit the limit the the time that they have to say what they're going to do and i've seen people do this with uh with an hourglass everybody has an hourglass when it's their turn they flip the hourglass and they have until the, the sands go out um usually it's a minute or 30 second timer um probably 30 seconds maybe it just depends on your game and how much you want to speed it up and if they if they don't make a decision in that time then well they 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 uh they defend so that they get a little bit of an advantage if somebody attacks them but that's all they do Mm -hmm. it can it can really put the pressure on especially when you have a player who uh maybe takes a little bit too long to decide what they're doing but one part to that is that you can have a discussion with your players, especially if this is a problem in in your particular campaign, mm-hmm. and uh, have a discussion with your players and, and really hit home the fact that just because it's not their turn doesn't mean that they shouldn't be paying attention, and more importantly, shouldn't should they should be deciding what they're going to do on their next turn, because when you say, okay, Osmond, what are you doing this turn, and they, you know, sit there and go, oh, okay, where am I? How many monsters are still alive? And how how much did anybody get hit last round? It's like, oh. <laughs> Who's been hit the most? <laughs> it's it's you know, it's like you really should have been paying attention because having having a player who takes, you know, three extra minutes every time on their turn, mm-hmm. uh boy can that drag combat down. Yep. And it'll make other people check out and then it becomes like this self perpetuating issue where like yeah, Osmond was taking three minutes on his, and then, and then, and then, like it got to the to the spellcaster who's like, "Oh my gosh, this is so boring. I'm so tired of waiting." And then they take the time on their turn because they were so busy being bored that they didn't look up what they wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is you can because everything has to be quiet while the person's thinking, and you can get bored of waiting even though you were prepared before and it, it does become such a vicious cycle yeah. and even though players can do this dms can do this as well um if you have a re- even a decent idea about what your party is going to be fighting and doing uh, making sure to have as much prepped beforehand uh can really help for me i always do i always do quick stats and stuff like that for monsters and i always have them ready for the start of session because while like you have to decide what all of your creatures are doing plus react to what the PCs are doing. If you're trying to run combat, 
while also trying to finish rolling the stats for for your bad guys, that's not going to go well, and that's going to drag down the combat a lot. Yeah, and if you're using monsters in your game uh, for for those combats, it, it can be a challenge to to do something on the fly because you've got. I mean, the the basic stats, the HP, the armor class, and all that stuff, but you've also got stuff like immunities, resistances, and keeping track of special abilities. And, I mean, if you really want to make combat challenging with this monster, then you have to understand what those things are. And having some quick way to identify that, whether it's... um, so sometimes I'll just bookmark the the bestiary in Pathfinder, and I'll flip to that that page of the bookmark. Um, lately, I've been using um, I've been using a, a tool called Combat Manager, which has access to a lot of the stuff that's in the bestiary. And so I'll search them, and I'll have them just up on my screen, and I look at them before we do the game. But that also is an easy way to remember if I forget that. Oh yeah, this guy is uh, is immune to to slashing weapons, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking the time to know a little bit more about their adversaries or your creatures, is uh, it can make all the difference. There's nothing worse than getting halfway through combat and going, oh, wait, none of your weapons <laughs> could have actually hit this guy. <laughs> Never mind. That's why this was such a high CR. That's why I put it here. Yep. <laughs> Um, so, but you got to try and keep combat interesting as well. As much as you got to keep it moving along, you also have to keep it interesting because if it is super boring or mundane or repetitive, uh, you're going to lose people's interest anyways. Absolutely. And, and I think the first step there is to really leverage the setting. So leveraging the setting could, could mean something as simple as not just making your battlefield an open field with clear lines of sights to everybody because that kind of lends itself to everybody just kind of balling up. Like I, I think of like the kid, like the little kid's soccer team where the ball's there and they all kind of bunch up around <laughs> the ball trying to kick it. Um, I, I see combat devolve into that a lot. Uh, so if you do things like provide terrain uh, for cover so that maybe you've got ranged uh, enemies that, that can do ranged attacks, they'll step out, take a shot and step back behind cover, making it harder for your players to uh, to get a shot in on them. Mm-hmm. And you can also put in some, uh, there's a lot of different options for difficult terrain, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, mudslides or rocks. I know a lot of times people cast uh, entanglement or, or what have you, and that causes other problems. Um, but you can make difficult areas to move through. So it's like, if you do have those, those uh, archers up high, right? Um, it's like, well, your party could get to them or somebody could get to them, but they have to go up this rocky slope, which is going to slow them down. They're going to take so many hits. And so it can really add to a level of, well, number one, believability. Number two, excitement. Yeah. And and then you can also have a, a task that the players have to do during combat, something that needs tending. And I, I think I mentioned this uh, in a recent episode where I have a forge in a in a battle area that the players are going to be in, and, and they're going to have to tend to it. Otherwise, it's going to overheat and start doing damage to them um, from from all of the magical items that are burning up in the forge. Um, so they'll have to do some sort of action that require that that vents it and and keeps the temperature at a somewhat stable temperature, which puts them in an area where 
they could be fired upon by archers or something like that. So they have to make the choice. Do I take the damage from from this forge overheating or do I uh, do I try and keep that done and let the other players uh, do do the battle? That's that's an incredibly fun way to add um, a new whole level to combat. Uh, having them have to do something that's not combat oriented during combat that is hilarious and I want to use it <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the key thing is I think making it to where it's a choice so it's a choice and if you don't do it this is what happens they, they may not know this is what happens they may have to experience it the first time and mm-hmm. and if you do do it then hey everything's good but this is the disadvantage of that so <laughs> I, yeah, I like that. Um, so along with uh, the different terrain options is uh, monsters, right? Like these guys are fighting something. Mm-hmm. So there's there's so, so very many monsters out there. Um, so many options. There's differences with resistances like you were talking about before um, between slashing weapons, bludgeoning weapons, piercing weapons, not to mention fire, cold, all the elemental stuff. Uh, you could you could even homebrew something like, uh, you know, has a resistance to gnomes. It's like, yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> that's my resistance. Um, or they could have immunities, and this this gives the players some big problem that they have to work around, especially if. Uh, say you guys are fighting like a werewolf and nobody has any silver weapons, mm-hmm. right? That's going to cause a pretty significant um, difference in combat than if everybody has a silver longsword. Yep. Or if the one guy has a silver longsword and and is tied up in something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you could... <laughs> Yeah, the the other thing I, I, I want to mention about mixing monster types is mixing them in the same combat. So having a mixture of different different types of monsters that would logically be together that have different um, resistance and immunity. So for instance, uh, like if we go the undead route, having skeletons mixed with zombies and, and they have different um, different resistances. So it makes combat a little bit like a puzzle without it actually being a puzzle. So those of your players that like like to figure things out, it could be a way for them to be like, oh, hey, Osman needs to go attack these guys and Unglar needs to go attack these guys and, and because they have the appropriate weapons for that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can have them start arranging the battlefield and kind of taking more of like a battle leader role. Mm-hmm. Which can be a little bit exciting. Yep. And and by doing that, by by mixing in different monsters, whether in the same combat or or uh, across different combats, it it's gonna make it more interesting than like, oh hey, we just killed the the tenth or hundredth or five hundredth skeleton <laughs> for today, yay! Because <laughs> um, it, it 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 will get old. Variety is spice of life, and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you when you are if you're a PC and you're approaching a situation, uh, the first thing that hopefully the PCs do is they're going to make a plan. Like you were just talking about, you mm-hmm. have somebody take command, you guys make a plan. Um, not all of your monsters are going to have um, that level of intelligence, <laughs> but some of them will. And so 
keep in mind that your monsters will use tactics too. Like coyotes in, in real life, coyotes. Uh, you'll have one coyote go and, and, and bait other animals and then while well, the rest of the pack is hiding behind a hill. So even though a coyote, they don't have that high of an intelligence, right? But they still use battle tactics. Yep. And, and we talked a little bit about this in episode four of the show. That's becomingdm.com slash EP4, um, where where using using tactics can make the, the battles more challenging for your players, but it can also make them more interesting. Because uh, if you just treat your enemies like they're, they're a bag of, bag of HP, that's the term that I always use. If it's a bag of HP, all anybody's going to do is just stand around and roll dice. And yeah, there might be some people that, that really enjoy that, but there's a lot of people that are going to be like, I mean, we could just play Yahtzee. Uh, um, I feel like we mentioned Yahtzee on this show a lot too (laughs) and and those tactics could be something as simple as this is who we attack because this is our prey drive for instance we identify the weak person and that's who we attack Um, it could be something like I understand these types of enemies and I know that that guy is the one that will do the most damage so he needs to be taken out first um, or it could be something like, hey, we're going to, like you mentioned, uh, luring them or hitting and running them to, to get them into an ambush or a series of traps. Um, whatever it is, think about what that enemy would do and what's appropriate for them and then and then make a plan according to that. Yeah, and with that plan, uh, having having your bad guys move around the map, right? Because mm-hmm. tactically you've got... Not not just the PCs are moving. Your guys didn't be like, oh, okay, we're going to get ambushed in four hours. I have chosen the site of my last stand, and <laughs> that's where they're going to stay, <laughs> right? They're going to engage. They're going to try to flank. Well, depending on intelligence, um, they they might even try to run away, right? Yeah. And pro- they might be successful in that. Maybe give some bad news to somebody. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and, and that running away could be just like a an instinct drive like i'm here for food and if the food is is fighting me too much i'm just gonna leave it alone get buy food <laughs> um uh yeah if you've got lower intelligence creatures stuff like that then um then you could uh you probably won't have them run away they'll probably just fight and fight and fight and not understand what's going on <laughs> The other thing that you can do to kind of help make combat more engaging is to have aspects of the encounters that are that are suited towards different character strengths. So if you've got um, if you've got a, a rogue, have have features of the battle that make it so where they can sneak around maybe and come up and get a sneak attack on somebody. Or if you've got rangers, have have battles that that involve a lot of ranged combat um uh, whatever it is identify what 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 those skill sets of your play of your characters are and try to build something out that that really highlights them and you, you probably won't be able to do this for every character every battle but as long as you make some some make the rounds a little bit uh, i think it can help yeah you don't have to ki- like di- um design one little part of every single session to cater to a single player but making sure that once a session there is some part of 
what's going on that is, well, this is what I do anyways, is highly tuned to one specific character. It's like this person gets to be the hero. Unfortunately, I, I kind of pre-plan this. <laughs> but, but it's like this person is going to be the hero today because this needs to happen and they are the only person who can do it. Yep. And that can make people feel like so special, especially when they have to figure it out. It's like, oh, we don't know what's happening. And somebody, it's like, wait, wait, I can do X. And they do X and everyone's like, yay, you did it. And they feel super special. And it's like, haha, I planned that four weeks ago. (laughs) 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 Yeah. um, And I think the last thing in combat uh, uh, that, that can be really helpful is to, to, for lack of a better terms, be theatrical. Don't it don't just like, oh, you hit. Okay, you did four damage. Oh, they hit. All right, they did six damage. Explain what those hits are. The the orc slashes down with his axe and grazes you on the shoulder doing four points of damage or whatever. And and it doesn't just have to be the attacks, it can also be the enemies, if they're if they're intelligent enough, they can shout out stuff to each other or taunt the players as well. Oh, that, yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because uh, think about it most most combat like in movies and stuff that you see, they're not just like swinging swords and being silent. There's yelling and screaming and and if you get down to individual battles, there could be like taunting and like, oh, your mother smelled of elderberries or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, so keep that in mind as you as you build it out. That and this is honestly a, a part that I struggle with some as a DM. I will I will make an effort to to do more descriptions, but I I've gotten better at like the the you hit they hit kind of thing, but but the actual actions of those enemies and how they interact um i have done that less one thing that i've done to kind of it takes a little bit of burden off me and also most players really 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 like it is uh, killing blows Mm -hmm. i stopped describing killing blows entirely um when my well for most players i've got a couple who just don't want to do it but when one of my players that likes it gets a killing blow, I'll just announce to them, you've got the killing blow. How do you want it to happen? Yep. And then they get to describe it. I don't have to try and describe 15 different killing blows a night, you know, and try to make each one of them interesting, which is it gets it, it gets exhausting after a while because a lot of stuff can die in a session. But if you <laughs> give that if you give that power to a player, they get really excited. Plus, they then they only have to come up with a couple in an evening. Right, right. No, exactly. That that uh, that can be helpful. And uh, yeah, so let's mm-hmm. kind of move on from combat and just have we kind of got like a little bit of a smorgasbord, a cornucopia of other things that you can do to, to help um, with player engagement. And, and on that note, I, I would say make sure that everyone is is getting a turn to speak because I know everybody at their table has those people that will talk a lot and then those people that will shy away if, if, uh, if they don't. And there's a few things that I like to do to do that. I'll say I want to hear what, what, uh, what Joe has to say, for instance, and just 
pointedly ask them what they have to say. The other thing I'll do is have NPCs that, that will only want to deal with certain types of character types, whether it's a class or race or something like that. And those will work really good. And it is important to kind of ask the shy people at the table, you know, what what do you want to do? And But it's also important not to badger the shy people at the mm-hmm. table. Make sure to bring them into the game, but but don't harass them into coming out of their shell when they're not ready. Yep, absolutely. And uh, and and to this, when it comes to the group making a decision, I think those talkative people can can over talk some other people. And so I used to not do this, but I've gotten more into it lately. Is is double checking and being like, "Hey, so and so is is." Are, are you on board with this plan? Just just to check to make sure that there's not something else that they're wanting to do. Yeah, when you've hear, heard every voice except for one person, it's like, you, if, especially with group decisions, you want to get them to also say that that's what they want to do, at least a nod. Mm-hmm. But uh, And going back to what we were talking about before when I was using um, players describing the deaths of, of creatures is another way to help keep players engaged is to keep idle hands busy. Some players have to have more stuff to do. And this this is great, though, because you can give these people tasks that can help you, right? Like, instead of me having to describe 15 deaths in, in, a, in a session, I can pass that off to my players, and then I don't have to do all of that thinking and all of that extra work every single night. Yeah, and this can this can help keep that player engaged more because they're going to have to pay attention to to take the notes or describe the thing or, or do whatever, um, and it it makes your life easier too. So hey, awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can get players to do. Something to think about. Look at look at areas where you're getting bogged down and see if that's something maybe you could just pass off to someone else. Yep. <laughs> so. And also moving on a little bit, uh, don't stagnate on the rules. And, and we've, uh, this is one that uh, that I think a lot of DMs probably encounter where they say that this is how a rule is going to work and a player maybe disagrees. Um, you limit that. Have a process. So so at some player some players will will allow kind of a back and forth rebuttal for a little bit and then have a final dm say um i will typically say this is how i understand it the player maybe disagrees and i'll say all right well i don't understand it like that for right now this is going to be the ruling but by next time i'll have this looked up and go so just to streamline that process and make it very simple i think your process is a little bit different but um yeah my process is basically the same, except for I allow them one defense. Okay. You know, I say this is what it is, and then they can call me on that just once. But otherwise, it's the exact same thing, you guys. Just say, Kate, well, this is how we're going to roll it for right now, and I'll look it up, or we can discuss it, and we'll move forward maybe for next session. Right. And the yeah. big thing is, is if you're going to, if you're going to, if you say you're going to look it up, look it up. And then next yep. session, start off with saying, hey, I looked into this rule and this is my, my final ruling based upon these data points. Exactly. Um, and also it's important to play the game that your players like. Mm-hmm. So not, not everybody is super big into role playing or super big into combat or puzzles, um, Nobody, it's it's odd to find somebody who only wants one of these things. And so it's always a blend of the three. 
but you have to figure out where that blend falls for your party as a whole and for the individuals within your party. Yeah, I think that we probably say this almost every uh, every episode. Keep your players in mind. Keep in mind what what gets them into the game, and and try at least a little bit to to cater towards that. Oh, exactly. Like not all com not all encounters are combat encounters, and so you can have things be role played out of, or you can have your. Uh, I always use the term murder hobo. <laughs> you can have your murder hobo just run in and and uh, solve the role playing problem quicker, you know. <laughs> yep. But there's always ways to add these options in to to keep whatever player you've got at the table interested and excited. Yep. And the the final piece of advice we have here, as far as keeping those players engaged, is is use visual and audio aids and and i use a lot of visual aids whether it's maps that are displayed on the tabletop um whether it's um things that i've 3d printed as props that they can they can look at and touch and feel uh the thing i don't do very well is is audio stuff so i i have tried from time to time to do kind of background music to set the set the mood and the scene i just it's one of those things that i do not keep up with (laughs) audio is a little bit uh, trickier to do but when you need it and like i don't use it that often but if i've got the party going into like a super super creepy place then i'll play super super creepy music Mm -hmm. because it's easier to get uh, an ambiance when you've got some music going. And so when you're trying to freak people out or make everybody really happy or keep the mood light, it's great for adjusting the mood of the party, especially if people have kind of gotten away from the mood that you're going for. Yeah, it, it's something that I have some storyline ideas where I know that it's going to be really important. So it's something I need to practice on uh, because especially if you're doing kind of mystery or horror type uh, type games it really can play a big part in there it's just a matter of uh, identifying when to use it how to use it and and using it well absolutely so i guess that's uh that's really what we wanted to talk to uh today so good luck to everyone out there that's that's uh, working hard on trying to keep their players more engaged in their in their uh, in their games. If you have any other ideas, we'd love to hear about them. Uh, mention us on Twitter, send us messages on on Facebook or or through our our page, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you really soon. Um, we'll see you in two weeks, and until then, stay, stay nerdy, nerdy, friends. friends. Thanks for joining us again. Make sure to share the show with friends to help grow our audience. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash becomingdm. On Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest, we are becomingdm. And our website is becomingdm.com. Becoming DM is produced by John Welsh and Danielle Tremblay. The show is edited by John Welsh. We'll be back in two weeks. See you then.